0: You're listening to Text Message, the UK-focused technology podcast with me. Hello, Nate Langson. And me, Ian Morris. And brought to you by you. Thank you to our patrons supporting us every week at patreon.com forward slash UK tech. Obviously, if you're one of those patrons, this is your extended ad-free version of this week's show with extra stories and no ads and, and things like that. Uh, but if you're not yet a patron and would like to get all those things, plus live streaming and hello to all the people listening to us currently in the our live chat room uh, then you can go to patreon.com forward slash UK tech and find out how you can support us with zero commitments that's the great thing you can try us before you buy us sort of um, sadly <laughs> we don't have any new patrons this week it's one of the few weeks where we, we haven't had any new ones so maybe you'd like to address that and join us for you know next week um, Ian Let's get into the news, shall we? Um, a campaign to teach children about copyright infringement on the internet, which began life actually five years ago, was relaunched this week with the aim of getting its message into primary schools. The UK's Intellectual Property Office has produced a range of teaching materials for Key Stage 2, so that's 7 to 11-year-olds,
1: I think? Or is it uh, Key Stage you, two mate, you got me. I, I have no idea.
0: Uh, this was according to the BBC. Yeah, set, set 7 to 11 Right, thank you. I thought so. Now it uses cartoons and puns, which is one of the main reasons I'm so interested in it. On pop stars' names, such as, pop stars' names such as Kitty Perry and my personal favourite, Justin Bieber, uh, to get its message across. Now, the Intellectual Property Office says that learning to respect. Copyrights and trademarks is quote a key life skill and thinks the adventures of Nancy and the Meerkats can finally make intellectual property fun. Now there's a sentence more than (laughs) ever thought would be uttered. Now the government agency is spending twenty thousand pounds of its own money on the latest Nancy campaign, uh, but it's also part funded by the UK music industry. And there's a caveat there, which is. I don't like that, which we'll discuss shortly. Um, In fact, no, let's discuss it now. I don't see any major issue with these skills being taught, uh, and it actually concerns me no more than learning about, say, religion and ethics from teachers who may be religious or unethical, I suppose, themselves. Um, But I don't like the fact that it's part-funded by the industry. Copyright infringement hurts the most. What do you reckon, Ian?
1: Uh, Well, I've got to say that I've always felt that, Um, There is too much. I think the government puts way too much uh, weight behind what the you know, the entertainment industry says. Uh, I've had I've had some arguments with people recently about, um, you know, about copyright in general and how, uh, you know, much of a pain in the ass DRM is. Uh, And, you know, and of, of course, the industry itself um, is one of those that's quite forceful, and for some reason manages to have the ear of the government. But um, uh, you know, but for example, I've I've had terrible trouble with people stealing my photos. I've, I think I've mentioned this before. Uh, you know, I'll take some pr- uh, product photos for a, an article I'll write, and I'll, and they'll get ripped off left, right, and centre. In fact, to the point which I've I've recently claimed two lots of. Um, Money for people who've taken my photos and used them editorially, um, and you know, and and I and I I do support the idea that you know copyright is overall a good idea. Um, the problem is the focus of it is always very much on people stealing music, and uh, you know, and I, I get that. It's but it's it, it's always individuals, right? And I, I you know, there's nothing wrong with education. You know, there isn't really. I don't have a problem with you know the industry being proactive about solutions to the problems. Um, But like you, I guess it it, it always feels like the entertainment industry is a little bit too much in control of legislation. You know, we hear about it all the time that we amber, Rudd will pop up and say something ridiculous. um, And it'll be, you know, you'll be like, oh, God, what are we going to have to deal with next? And it, it is a bit like that. Um, and I had a conversation with people at you know, DRM, people, someone wanted to record a program that their son was in and send it to relatives in America. And I was like, you can't do that uh, because ultimately, although it's a pretty reasonable use of, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think any copyright holder is going to be too worried about that use. Um, it obviously just falls under the same set of controls that we use for everything. Um, and so, yeah, so it's not acceptable. Well, the chat room is
0: presenting some very interesting observations on this. John, uh, one of our one of our patrons, uh, says, "As teachers, we need more materials like this to teach it." Uh, he says, "You'd be yeah. surprised how little training and support there is in schools to train staff about this." Uh, he also says, "I'm currently rewriting my curriculum to include more online safety and copyright. Uh, also, teaching about how the internet works and search bots networking." File management, because uh, he he says kids leave school with a lot of knowledge of coding, but less about about this sort of thing, which is which is interesting. And, and Luke also in the chat says his girlfriend um, would would agree. Being a primary school teacher, um, although he, he says copyright might not be the number one topic, but it seems the consensus is uh,
1: is is that this is a good move. I think that the thing is if you if you are able to communicate, you don't, probably don't need to do this. If you're able to communicate to kids that music is a product. Um, like any other, like food, like bread, like milk. Um, and then, so then, ergo, it is wrong to steal a product. Now, obviously, there can is I a just whole... Can I just land an asterisk there for a following comment? Yeah, yeah, you can. Well, I'm, I might be about to say the exact same thing. It's, it, it, you can't necessarily call it theft if the original product remains untaken. Um, because obviously, you know, music... there is always a feeling, isn't there, that people who steal music or TV programmes would have been people who would have bought it otherwise. In fact, that's often not the case. People often do download things because they're able to rather than because they necessarily want them. They may either not watch it, not listen to it. A lot of the time when I was a lot younger... A lot of the whole, the, the, whole, the whole culture around downloading and torrents and, you know, all of the FTP stuff that goes on in the background was always about, first of all, it was about technical understanding. It was about it was cool to understand how those things work. And the infrastructure built around that kind of stuff is actually really fascinating, like genuinely cool. Um, so there was a little bit of that. And then there was a lot about amassing a large library of stuff, even if you never listen to it. Like, for example, if I downloaded Metallica... It wouldn't be because I'm a Metallica fan, it would be because it was part of something and I just downloaded it en masse. And a lot of those, you know, the the university kids who are getting into that kind of thing are just amassing huge databases of content that they'll never actually use. Now, obviously, I'm not going to pretend that that's right, but it's just one of those things, isn't it? Like, you can't stop people from being inquisitive, and I wouldn't seek to. Um, so you know I th- there is that and I sort of also would f- suggest that perhaps the entertainment industry should fund the whole of this course really if they're going to be if they're going to be like we, we want you to definitely talk about music specifically and going outside of what I just said which was can we make it more of an ethical discussion whereby we, we explain to kids that, you know, this is a product, people get paid based on the sales from that product. Therefore, there is an ethical in, you know, idea behind not taking something because you're at some point you're depriving people of a, of a, a living. Um, and you've, I is think the point that, that you raised- do when rappers and singers are often talking all the time about how much money and cars they've got. Well, you
0: you were correct in highlighting that my asterisk that I had dropped down was indeed about the difference between downloading a copy of something and stealing a physical object. Because yeah. the point I wanted to make is that this is how it's likened in, in these documents, apparently, is that they, they compare stealing something from a shop to stealing a song off the internet. But the the daft thing is, if you actually look at the wording of the laws that that this relates to, is they're not even the same law. Because downloading something is a civil... It's like a civil wrongdoing, whereas yes. theft, theft mm. is 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 a criminal offence. Well, the other side to this, of course, is that the effort is going into teaching kids about how not to damage the creative industries, which I, as we said, you know, I have nothing fundamentally a- against, but it does raise the question of whether, of all the priorities that a school may have in terms of the curriculum it's trying to deliver, is this the side of the the technology industry? and its problems that we should be focusing on. I mean, personally, I think a bigger effort, you know, should be going into educating kids about how to protect themselves you know it's a worrying fact that 15 year olds on twitter can say something that might get them fired in their 20s and then of course there's the, the sexting problem and there's i looked at some figures and nearly there are several hundred children now under the age of 12 who have been spoken to by police in the last two or three years alone as a result of sexting um, there was one from a boy as young as five and then the and, and apparently the most common age is 13 or 14 so these are ages where this sort of thing should really be
1: taught in schools at a much younger age we need to make sure that kids are aware of the implications of i mean particularly with sexting it's a it's a massively interesting thing for me because i've you know i think about this from the context of being a parent i think about it from the context of being a person and you know and i and i think well what would i do now given that the technology allows me to share photos Um, With people intimately if I wanted to and I still kind of feel like uh, I I feel kind of sort of a bit uncomfortable with the idea of it Um, because of course once you've done something like that it's out there and you never know what happens to it. There's
0: a very large number of ways that kids can unwittingly and very innocently get themselves potentially into quite a lot of trouble either as children uh, or in later life. I suppose one thing that's worth pointing out actually is that in a rare move of uh, legislation catching up to technology uh, the about two years ago in 2016 beginning of the year uh, in england and wales if if a young person was found creating or sharing sexual explicit images of themselves the police can choose to record the crime has been committed but actually not take formal action if it's not in the public interest i.e unless it was being done to deliberately exploit people or, or blackmail them or something something where they pose a threat or a risk to others. They could basically give you the token slap on the wrist and say, "Look, this is really bad. Don't do this." And I think that's that's a good move because the last thing you want is to be 14 and end up being on a sex offenders register for distributing child porn. Uh,
1: that that should never be allowed to happen. Like there is no there is no reason that someone who's sharing their own pictures should ever be subject to criminal proceedings. Um, I don't know why the law is so difficult about it because I understand that sharing pictures of minors it has to be a crime, but it it cannot be that hard to write into the law, if the person sharing it did so of their own free will, then that's fine. Um, And then, you know, I I, I guess the problems come if that person... Gets maybe uh, tricked into sharing photos themselves with someone who's older, who maybe pretends to be younger, and then if those photos then go on, but even so, that's still a clear. There's still a clearly a, a point at that where you could say, "Well, that's a crime," but the bit preceding it wasn't. I mean, you know, there is a. The law is an ass. That is quite a well-known expression, and it's it's there for a reason.
0: Yeah, true. Plus, I think in the example you gave, I think in that in that instance, the child would be uh, protected. And indeed, it would probably be the older person who was very much fingered by the law. You'd
1: you'd think, wouldn't you? You'd think. But there are enough stories about minors getting um, done for sharing photos of their own bodies. And that just shouldn't be happening. Like I'm all for saying, well, we need to have a conversation with these people because they're too young. Um, Mm. But look, you can't you can't stop. Unfortunately, I, I, I'm a, I'm a bit of a prude. I'll be honest. I, you know, like I, I, there have been times in the past where I've said I think they should raise the age of consent uh, rather than you know letting kids. But you can't stop it happening. It's no point making laws to try and protect children from themselves because they're still going to make the mistakes. Doesn't make any difference. You can't explain to a fourteen-year-old that they're potentially going to ruin their whole lives by getting a you know conviction for a sex offence that they didn't commit. Well,
0: Ian, I know this doesn't affect you massively since you didn't play the original version of the game, but the two two other creators of the game, Theme Hospital, a guy called Gary Carr and Mark Webley, are working on a modern spiritual successor to that game, according to Polygon this
1: week. This gets me very, very excited indeed, Ian. Very excited. Across my entire body, in fact. Well, it's can g- you explain to me, in, in very simple terms, why, why you like the game so much in the first place? Because it doesn't appeal to me at all. Um... Tell me what's not fun about
0: setting up machines to cure something called bloaty head syndrome.
1: Well, I mean, okay, fair enough.
0: Point made. I'm on. Thank you. Uh, so this is going to be called Two Point Hospital, which is named after the, these two gentlemen's new company, Two Point Studios. And the this hospital sim aims to bring back the humour, charm, and replayability of its inspiration it's also going to be published by sega and released for pcs later this year and i sincerely sincerely hope for mobile as well because this is a game that badly needs to exist for tablet devices and phones as well although hopefully as a premium purchase because in-app purchasing to buy more hospital space it might be realistic that is indeed how hospital expansion works but it's certainly not the catalyst for fun um For those of you who aren't familiar with this, the whole idea of Theme Hospital was uh, a bit like Theme Park, which it was the successor to, in that you have a plot of land, you build a hospital, uh, you have to hire people, they have different skills, doctors who are cheap may be awful doctors and more expensive doctors are better, you know, much as it is in real life, and you have a variety of diseases from slack tongue to bloaty head syndrome um what's that? heaped piles all kinds of fun stuff uh, and you wanted to build a successful hospital business and it was it was great it was it was a lot of fun um but it seems to have lagged behind uh not lagged behind as such that style of game has sort of fallen by the wayside uh in in desktop land and and has moved into being a kind of a cash grab for in-app payments like uh, as city builders things more like sim city these days um but i'm very excited about this the, the game actually if you remember it came up in our 100th episode our, our live anniversary
1: show we mentioned yeah in the hospital. that was a long time ago actually wasn't it that 100th episode yeah I'm just i'm just thinking back, thinking back to it and it was quite a while back yeah no i think they should do theme podcast studio or theme podcast network or i, I mean you, you could certainly get in touch with a, a developer and uh and pitch that idea i'm sure I think so. Theme journalist. Well, if you have
0: an opinion on Theme Hospital, if you have any fond memories of it, or if you're like myself, but less like Ian, excited about its spiritual <laughs> revival, then let us know on hello at techpodcast.uk. Well, Ian, there was a fun article on 9to5Mac this week in which it wrote that the first new product Steve Jobs announced after taking the stage of Macworld 2008, 10 years ago, uh, was Time Capsule, that router backup thingy. Um, But then he announced the MacBook Air. And that was 10 years ago last week, an entire decade ago. It's amazing to think about that. It Um, is, isn't it? And And how we laughed. Yeah. The original MacBook Air sort of gave us a glimpse into the future of Apple's plans and ambitions across all of its product lines. But it was also a very influential product in terms of how it helped shape the PC industry as well. But what's interesting, and we're going to talk a little bit about the PC side. This isn't an Apple... Segment. This is a uh, sort of a general computing segment. Uh, But it's interesting to me to to use the MacBook Air as kind of a sign of just how much has changed within the computing industry since its introduction 10 years ago. If you remember, the MacBook Air inspired the whole Ultrabook revolution on the Windows side of things. Intel announced the Ultrabook concept in uh, 2011 at Computex uh and and so, and then it also separately launched a fund to to help support startups that were working on technologies that would support the concept of ultrabooks um one of the first ever ultrabooks was actually the one of the old Acer Aspires it was an S3951 which um if you think about the specs here it's Again, it's interesting to compare this to the to the MacBook Air. Uh, it was 0.68 inches thick. It weighed 1.4 kilograms. It had a 13-inch screen in, in very standard definition, 1366 by 768. Uh, 1.6 gigahertz Intel Core i5. Um, 20 gig SSD, but also had a 320 gig spinning disk. The Air was entirely flash-based at the time. 4 gig of RAM, 6 hours of battery life, ran Windows 7 and cost 700 quid. There were loads that came out after that from Acer, Asus, HP, Toshiba, uh, Samsung, Lenovo, and, and many more besides. And they all sort of followed this general uh, MacBook Air-like design, um, but for under 1000 well, it was $1,000, I think was Intel's goal, £1,000 sort of thing. But you look today... At the MacBook Air, which is still being produced by Apple, and it continually baffles me because almost everything about it represents so much of what's considered undesirable in a laptop now. You've still got the standard definition screen with the old style pixel densities, i.e., non retina or, you know, very low uh, sort of sharpness, if you like, compared to what we're used to now on PCs and and on Macs. Uh, The bezel around the display is large and kind of a needless use of space. It's got spinning fans for cooling. Uh, At one point, 3, five kilograms it weighs mo- it weighs almost half a kilogram more than the standard macbook or the asus mbook 3 on the pc side which weighs 900 grams um, it's still by a wide margin now thicker than a lot of ultra portables um, it's 1.7 centimeters thick at its fattest end which is actually believe it or not thicker than the macbook pro uh, by not a small margin it's 1.4 centimeters deep the pro uh, and for better or worse, it includes multiple full-size ports, USB, SD cards, Thunderbolt, um, stuff like that. Um, and this is even before we talk about the fact that many products now offer a lot more flexibility in terms of use cases, you know, like the Microsoft Surface um, line, which I think is a, is a fascinating line. Uh, obviously, you've got Apple's iPad Pro models, um, which do most things the Air does probably better, but, uh, you know, uh, what am I trying to say here? Uh Oh, I'll we'll just forget that. We'll just leave that one hanging. <laughs> uh, and then, I'll be, you know, Lenovo's yoga products and, and things like that. But yeah, it's still going strong. It's still going strong 10 years later. And I was having a briefing last year, I think, for all the new iMacs and MacBooks over at Apple's building and I asked why the air was still being made, how outdated everything in it and all its design philosophies were Um, and it essentially boils down to the fact that the battery life is insanely long and desirable. It's 12 hours officially but some people are getting 18, 19, 20 hours of battery life out of that thing Um, and and a big part of that is because the lower resolution screen actually draws far less um, power. So it's one of these weird things where it's a relic of the past that is actually still quite competitive but for a fairly specific reason a news case. Um, but I, I just I wanted to put a little marker in the sand that it's 10 years. And when you've finished saying anything you're about to say about the MacBook Air, I've got a list of f- five other products that came out in 2008. And we can talk about how times have changed since they mm-hmm. all were released.
1: No sure. I I mean for me the the air was a product it, it's quite a funny product because we did laugh. I mean it, it's it's difficult it's almost difficult for a lot of people who probably wouldn't won't remember that product coming out. We, we you know we were at the start of our professional journalism careers pretty much, weren't we? Um and uh we, you know both at CNET. and I just remember this thing coming out which had massively reduced ports compared to a normal laptop. Um all sorts of compromises in terms of uh power um you know and uh, just because obviously it was a very very small light machine and we laughed and um and it changed the world of computing and i mean obviously there's, there'll be some people who just you know mock me for saying that but it's absolutely true that whole that MacBook Air. That when he, if you watch that presentation now and you watch Steve Jobs take it out of a Manila envelope, even now you're like, yeah, that's cool. That 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 has that there is something about that that is quite remarkable. Um, and I and I think it was a, a real turning point for computing all over. And you know certainly Intel has no right to complain as it you know launched a whole generation of things that it was very involved with and that whole ultrabook thing was very much designed to wrest power back from apple um, because people were just like well i want i don't want i don't want a laptop i can't carry around the whole point of these things is supposed to be that they're portable and laptops just weren't they were big and ugly and bulky and they didn't need to be like that they could have been nicely designed before apple came along and did its thing but as always you know it apple has got this habit of uh, doing things and and sort of starting people thinking in different ways about their products and why apple is able to storm in with an overpriced machine and still sell lots of them when everyone knows it's not better technically than a lot of other stuff um you know it's it's it's, it's and it's funny to watch people wrap themselves up in it it's, you know it's overpriced it's overpriced well there's something about it, isn't there, that's selling to people, and things are only ever worth what people are prepared to pay, right? So the MacBook Air it will always have a very sp- sort of specific part of computing history because it genuinely was a revolution. Um, and I, I'm looking at the pricing now. Um, I, I'm not sure if I can, you know, really justify this from Apple's perspective, but it is a lot cheaper. It's only $1,000. Um, I'm, I'm, I've ended up on the Apple US site and I can't be bothered to change it now. So we'll just go with dollar prices. But it's, it's $1,000. I'm guessing it's about 1,000 quid as well. Whereas the... The MacBook starts at $1,300. The MacBook Pro starts about $1,200, doesn't it? So you're still saving money. It and, and like you say, battery life is hugely important to a lot of people who aren't carrying a laptop to do, you know, massive processing. They're carrying something to to write on, to email on, to you know, just to, to be productive. Um, and I would say to those people, you could probably get by with a an iPad Air, but again. It's not cheaper, you know the iPad. The iPad, um, sorry, the iPad Pro. I mean, the iPad Pro is the same price by the time you've got the decent one. Uh, So ultimately, I can see a place for the Air. I think it could do with a screen update, Um, but again, I get get what they're saying. If if you're going to have to botch the battery, uh, I've got 720p laptops around the house that actually especially as I'm getting a little bit older, I'm like, actually, this is fine. Like, no one likes a, a nice, tidy, high-resolution desktop more than me. But also, I don't have the eyes of a 21-year-old anymore. I have the eyes of a man many years older. So I'm, I'm getting into the idea of bigger icons. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's funny because the, the MacBook Air, when it was announced, it came out
0: just as another craze that, that kind of took off in 2008 um, was going down, which was the whole um, netbook craze um yeah, it was ushered which in which really
1: got slaughtered didn't it by this
0: well it sort of did i mean steve jobs had famously described netbooks as being cheap and nasty and not better than anything and, and i was at the launch of the Mac, at the macbook air and i remember the comments pretty well and um and it was they sort of came out around 2007 but it wasn't really in 2008 that they started shipping with windows xp on them and that was the thing where everyone says oh apple needs to make an a netbook killer it's netbook killer it's netbook killer." and then it came out with this thing that was you know better than a netbook but obviously cost about four times as much um but they effectively killed that off and then put the final nail in the coffin with the ipad of course um around the same Around the same point, um, John in the chat, uh, Luke in the chat room was talking about uh, netbooks. The original ones ran Linux in 2007.
1: Yeah, the um, Asus I, one, the original. What was it called? The was it EPC called the 901. Right. Okay. Because di- di- you didn't buy one, did you?
0: I didn't buy one. I used one for a while and, and discarded yeah. it after realizing it was a POS.
1: Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I remember Rupert Goodwin's bought one, didn't he? Um, he did, and, yes. Uh, yeah. And, and, you know, I think there's definitely a place for those kind of, or a there, there particular time there was, because, you know, Rupert uh, is a home in Linux anyway. I've never much cared for it. But I can see why people would have opted for those little machines that are very, very portable and allow you to do probably 99% of all the things you'd ever want to do. Um, they served, They served a purpose, but they weren't ever really properly laptop replacements, were they? They were kind of like... Oh, and Drew bought one, didn't he?
0: I vaguely remember Drew buying one.
1: Yeah, Yeah, we'd have to ask him. But yeah, you know, um, it was... I guess the point was they were... For the time, they were insanely cheap. Um, And then again not a million years later, we got the Chromebooks, which essentially filled that same gap. It's that kind of super, super cheap, maybe about 200 pound machines that are sufficient for most tasks, but, you know, aren't going to be much fun to use, but they'll, they'll do. Um, and I, I before the iPad Pro came along, I, that was what I used to grab to go out. I would just grab a Chromebook, because frankly, it doesn't matter if it gets stolen. It doesn't matter if you drop it. It doesn't matter, you know, if it blows up. It's cheap to replace. All of your stuff is stored in the cloud. You don't need to worry about it. Um, you'll be back up and running within minutes. So, you know, uh, from that perspective, I, I, th- there's still probably a place for the Chromebook. Unfortunately, Google being Google has gone completely the other way and decided to make only Chromebooks that cost £1,000. And Well, I'm like, it wants to set an earth? example because it's done that before.
0: It did the, oh, pic- it, the Chromebook Pixel, just- which I had one of. And it was like the most overpowered web browser. Sorry, overpriced web browser you could possibly have
1: absolute balls mate right. because it, it, those things are there they have very good pc hardware in them you know you can have that thing at up to an i7 what is the point you're running web apps the whole point is that for a start if you if you encourage people to use high-end pcs for those web apps you're going to destroy the ecosystem because they'll be unusable on the low-end devices um and second of all the whole point is that they're supposed to be lightweight and simple and cheap And, you know, I get the pixel because Google can use it for employees, although I bet you money, almost none of them will take that option over the Apple because they have two choices at Google, don't they? You can either have a Mac or a Chromebook, but I bet it's only the Chromebook team that has Chromebooks.
0: It's quite possible. Um, Interestingly, my wife actually in the chat room right now, Kate, is is saying that her college, because she's uh, studying veterinary nursing... um, it says they have netbooks that they lend to students who don't have their own laptops and so they have carry handles built into the plastic and the charge lasts for about 30 minutes she says um, which is which is interesting because that also just reminds me of the fact that a lot of those EPCs were sold into education because they were yeah. at the sort of price where you could have one between two for kids and it was so so much cheaper than than trying to get every kid to have their own laptop or to have enough PCs in the school that it made it viable for a class to study entirely on computers outside of being in the computer or it um, class although she says they're apparently meant to last longer than 30 minutes so it's probably more likely that they're old
1: a lot of this stuff has been destroyed by tablets like you could get a pretty serviceable tablet to work on for probably a you know not much more if you went for an there were certain android tablets that are pretty good like for example there's a there's a Sony. I don't think they produce it anymore. It's a shame, really. Um, but I've got one somewhere. It's a really nice Android tablet. Like, I mean, I'm not a big fan of Android tablets because I, I just don't. I don't think Android has ever really nailed the tablet ecosystem. But the the Sony did it nicely, and you could get a keyboard with it. Again, it probably wasn't cheap. But again, you know, uh, for battery life, for you know, doing the basics of what you need to do at college, probably perfect. And I suppose the thing that's worth pointing out
0: is that. Um the, you know, we, we've talked about the MacBook Air being the netbook killer, but it wasn't really, was it? Because the iPad was a year earlier, and that was kind of the, meant to be the netbook killer. And then- Well,
1: yep, yeah, I would dispute that because I don't think the iPad ever, back then particularly, was ever really a device that was ideal for replacing anything i i'm not a big fan of the early i mean i, I again i mock the early ipads but i stand by that because the early ones were pretty bad and you know i remember I, we, I remember i can't remember whose birthday it was it was probably drew's actually um you came along with the first generation one and, it, and there's a photo of me with it somewhere uh um, when i when i got one. it yeah, um, and, yeah, because I went to uh, the US near the launch time. Yeah, and those things, <clears throat> they just weren't any good. It was too big. It was too bulky. It wasn't really, it wasn't set up and there weren't enough apps and I just think you would have struggled to do very much productive on it. You know, as a gaming thing and as a sort of a, an email machine, I could kind of get it. Um, I, I, I feel like, now the ipad is arguably a replacement for the laptop if you if you're brave enough and you and there certainly are enough apps to support it i would say um, obviously, It won't work for everyone because there are quite a lot of people who can't, you know, do business stuff on them. But, you know, at the same time, now I feel like it's a credible alternative. Back then, I don't think the iPad was aimed at that at all. And I don't think you'd wanted to take it out because it was a huge, heavy beast um, with a massive screen that was likely to be very susceptible to being cracked. So, you know, uh, I, I suppose these days there's so many good cases and stuff like that. But hey. Well, the um, we're going to tie
0: up this segment because we could go on forever if I if we start talking about the other things I've got in my list here. But um, the the other things that were released in two thousand eight that otherwise would have formed a discussion, uh, the iPhone three G, of course, um, Nokia's comes with music program, which was Nokia's attempt to tie a music subscription, a bespoke its own music subscription program DRM'd into the sale of a new phone itself. Uh, But you then had access to all the music uh, that uh, that you wanted as Long as you were using it on that specific phone. Uh, the Amazon Kindle, the first Kindle, came out in 2008. Uh, it was also the year HD DVD died. Any thoughts you have on what has become quite an epic discussion uh, on this, let us know at hello at techpodcast.uk. <laughs> Ian, it's time for everyone who's keeping track to pick up their shot glasses and drink because we're going to talk about broadband. I can almost hear my wife in the other room cheering as we discuss our favourite topics. You'll probably cheer in the Patreon in the uh, live chat room. Anyway, um, consumers are being guaranteed minimum speeds of 100 megabits per second in two new ultra-fast broadband services from BT. Uh, this was according to a write-up this week on the BBC, but frankly most of what we're about to talk about I've read elsewhere. Uh, BT is going to offer speeds up to a rather odd number, 314 megabits per section, uh, per section? Per second. Uh, that's one option. As well as a 152 megabits per second option. Now, this is where it gets interesting and in my eyes controversial those who sign up to either package are going to get a 20 pound compensation insert asterisks here if their internet download speed fell below 100 megabits per second uh, they can do that up to four times per year now this is according to bt obviously a perk but it kind of means that if your broadband really sucks then you'll only be compensated as much as somebody whose connections only suck once every three months which to be fair it's probably a rightful claim for termination of your contract if your connection is 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 regularly one third of the speed you were promised but still um then i looked at some of the caveats in the terms and conditions of this deal uh and what actually that 20 pound relates to and, and very few of the tech sites i've written about this seem to have identified this is that what you're actually getting is a 20 pound bt gift card that you have to use within 90 days um you know and and that excludes connection faults as well um and the other thing is that fiber it tends to be a pretty solid speed most of the time so the chances of you dropping regularly from 314 megabits per second to to under 100 is incredibly unlikely
1: Now, so well, that's true. Um, but what I was gonna, the point I sort of took from this was that um, I think it's there is a because of the congestion locally, it's the problem they have had is that I think. If your line is a little bit dodgy between your house and the green box, then you will routinely not have good speeds. But And I think that the, what they're trying to say here is that we've done away with that because they put this pod closer to your house, basically, don't they? Um, and, and then use VFAST to deliver the, the last bit of it to your you know actual address. There shouldn't ever be a, a, a point where you're not getting the full speed. Um, and whereas with the other thing... Line length, line quality—all that last bit of that run was massively impactful on whether they could deliver VDSL because VDSL is super unreliable um, and only really works on really, really short cable runs. Well, here are some other issues that I find with this. Um, the next, the next point is that it's
0: really quite expensive. Um, If you want the 152 megabit package, that'll cost you from 55 quid a month. If you want the top speed of over 300 meg, that'll cost you 60 quid a month. You compare that... This is the thing.
1: It's not so much that the prices are expensive. It's that the price difference between 152 and more than double that is absolutely ridiculous. But it's classic upsell. It doesn't cost them any more. six quid. No. Well, it doesn't. No. Well, it probably does because, well, I don't know. Who knows? Come on, mate. Is it's mar- is probably, is there- that
0: is marginal cost. Marginal, marginal cost to them.
1: That 60 quid is not dramatically more than Virgin's charging for 300 meg, is it? Yes, quite significantly more. Well, how much are you paying for 300 meg? Well,
0: I, I'm different because I've been a customer for such a long time that I get a discounted rate. But I looked up the, the, um, the cost for a new sign-up and you can get up to 200 meg for £37 a month for the first year and then £42 a month after that. Or you can get their 300 megabit package for £43 a month for the first 12 months, and then 48 a month for the rest of the time. So, so
1: even- this, 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 this is annoying me because I can't get 300 meg, and I'm not paying very much less for 200. But that's, the, that's what they're competing with. Now, my theory, and I
0: haven't been able to find anything to back this up, but I reckon it might be correct, is that BT's fibre packages include line rental. As uh, you know, they say it doesn't cost you any extra; it includes line rental. But it does make me wonder that the, the price of line rental and the cost difference between Virgin and BT is it's quite similar. So I wouldn't be surprised if there's some sort of internal budgeting going on where the fiber guys have to give a kickback to the the line rental team, um, and that's one of the reasons that this is expensive. But I don't but know. Also.
1: Bear in mind that this isn't—it's not like Virgin, where essentially Virgin upgrades tend to come down to a an improvement in the technology used to transmit the data, like uh, Doxis or whatever—and and 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 that tends to involve with Virgin, you you're really you're you're buying you're getting extra channels, aren't you? So they send a lot more channels of data for broadband than they used to. It used to be two, and now it's like eight, um, and that's why you get more speed uh bt obviously has to actually physically go and the reason and i noticed you've you've mentioned that you weren't able to find the phone exchange it was actually enabled on um they have to actually go somewhere and they have to put a pod on a lamppost and they have to do that probably for us for you know a long street we well, say i mean i've been to your street that's you know they're probably going to have to put a pod on every other lamppost that's not going to cost nothing uh, it might not be massively expensive either but it will it will it will have a cost um and and then they've got to change all of the customers' equipment in the house, uh, which they do, I believe, for free. Um, it's included, shall we say? So yes. I can I can kind of see it. Like I, I under- it is expensive. Um, it's also beaten Virgin technically in the top speed, which is important from a PR perspective. No, it hasn't. Um, well, what's the top Virgin speed? I get three hundred ninety meg down. Well, you're a bit sold as three hundred, isn't it?
0: It's sold as three fifty.
1: Oh is it it is ah yeah. and oh, i get and i get 390 too. down <clears throat> i thought it was sold as i thought it was sold as 300 but it used to be hey ho it used They've changed be. it well, it doesn't um, matter to me, because I can't bloody get it anyway. Well,
0: the two final points before we finish this. Um, at the moment, it feels like you need a golden ticket to even get the service anyway, because I looked at all the places where apparently this is now available in the UK, and something like 250,000 households, but I checked postcodes for every single town that this is apparently available in, and I couldn't find a single one on BT's own website that said I, as in that particular postcode, was eligible for this. Even a place in Donaldston in Scotland, which currently gets an 80 megabit fibre connection from bt wasn't eligible for this i actually also found a road in that same town that bt's own telephone exchange building is on and that didn't have availability there either so i don't know who exactly can even get this if you know you can please let us know send us your postcode so so we can see if any of the postcodes i know work on it look it up but it, it, it won't be because it just doesn't seem to be anywhere i'm i'm convinced um all of that said I think that it's at least good that BT has begun to invest in this because the more competition in the fibre space, the better. And although I've been very negative about this, it's largely just because I think it's too expensive. I think that the, the promise of the, the whole guaranteed speed and discount thing is, is not as anywhere near as good a deal as the PR makes it sound.
1: God almighty, did you know that 80 meg broadband from BT, which isn't 80 meg anyway, is 40 quid a month? No. It doesn't surprise me at all. 40 quid. And the 52 meg one is 30 quid. That should be basically free.
0: Yeah. Well, the average broadband, the average speed in the UK now is 44 megabits per second. So you're not paying for much more than an average. But that is boosted by the fact that a lot of people do have three hundred meg broadband. Anyway, that's gonna all check. that we're going to talk about for broadband this week because I know it's not to everybody's taste. But you know, Ian and I love this stuff. You know, we do. We, legit, yeah. Sometimes Ian and I, instead of going to our local disco, uh, what we do is we put a big spinning ball <laughs> at, at the top of our um, at the top of a, a room, and then we dance. While singing songs with all the words replaced to things to do with broadband, and I mean we're all going to laugh about this in the future because when everything's wireless, we're going to be like people in twenty tens were digging up streets to put cable down. Why didn't everyone just put a satellite dish on the top of their chimney? You know, because internet oh, no. in the future will be like Sky TV is now. It'll all be wireless.
1: We will laugh about wires um well you know what i've just recently had an experience where i've been trying to replace a wire with wireless and i mean we're probably 50 years off that being a possibility no way 10 max you tried it mate it's absolutely terrible i i i've got i've got equipment here that's supposed to do 300 megabits wireless between each device i was at best able to get I've, a, like a tiny fraction of that. I was copying data over at like two megabits per second or something like that. Unbelievable. That sounds like user error to me, yeah. mate, because that's pitiful. No. It is pitiful.
0: It's just it wireless, pitiful. mate. It's just not very good. Well, it's great here in my house. <laughs> Ian, let's dive into our bag of mail, our mail bag. Um, This week, we've got, again, we've got so much mail, we're going to have to bump some to to next week, um, but we're going to try and keep the ones this week that are the most timely. We're going to start off by talking uh, about an email from Mike, one of our patrons. Hello, Mike. He says, regarding your conversation about Wi-Fi calling on SIM-free handsets, I thought I'd share some inside knowledge with you as I work in the mobile industry and have first-hand experience as to why... Mobile networks had these odd rules in place. Now, I should point out here, this stems from an original email we had from one of our other listeners, John Nicol, who's asking about why can't I get Wi-Fi calling Uh, on a sim-free plan from a provider and I pointed out that I have it on Vodafone and we'll come to some other people's opinions shortly Uh, but Mike's got some inside information about why it might be the case he says perhaps unsurprisingly the reason why some operators chose to limit the availability on devices uh, that weren't bought from from them directly was cost Um, There's actually a license required to use the technology that sits behind Wi-Fi calling. For example, in the case of Vodafone, they made a decision initially to limit the service to Vodafone bought handsets only. They also decided to limit it to only the newest Vodafone bought compatible handsets at the time, even though the service would have worked on older models. The the reality is that despite Vodafone's rules, the service would have worked on any device that supported it and was running a firmware version that included it. The quote-unquote rules that were put in place were purely commercial, not technical. These days, just about all of the UK networks have relaxed this rule. Uh, And he points out, I'm on EE with a SIM-free iPhone X and Wi-Fi calling works fine. So there you go to our other, uh, to to John. There's uh, another example there of EE working. Um, The tipping point always seems to come when the customer perception of the service switches from being a nice to have to an expected part of their package uh, and once the networks begin losing sales the rules are normally relaxed or removed it's fascinating insight mike so thank you very very much for for, for that and, and another example there of um a sim free contract uh, sorry a sim only contract that does include wireless calling uh, and we also had one from john a different john he says, hi, Nathan Ian. On this week's podcast, you asked if anyone was using Wi-Fi calling with a SIM-only plan. I have Wi-Fi calling on my 12-month SIM-only contract with three. He says that comes with £19 a month. Uh, and he uses it with an iPhone 10 he bought separately from Apple. So um, again, another example there. So that's three... EE and Vodafone, who we have at least one example of each that do support this on a SIM-free contract. So definitely three networks to ask about. Uh, And John finally says, I think your original correspondent said he was also with three, but didn't have Wi-Fi calling. I can only think perhaps the phone model is a factor. Now, I can't remember what model phone John was using, but maybe if he's listening to this, he can tell us and and see how he's getting on. Let's give us an update. We want to find out, you know, the community is helping each other here. It'd be interesting to see uh, what the result of that is. Ian, would you like to read the email we've had from Jacob who said we didn't need to read this out and I said we're going to because it's one of our (laughs) favourite topics?
1: (laughs) Yes. Uh, It says, I'm going to make a slight correction to the language because it's used in Americanism I don't care for. I finally got to the point that wired earbuds just aren't cutting it for me. I had planned to make the move to AirPods, but recently tried out a pair from Sony. I fell in love with them, but simply don't have 350 US dollars to spare. I was wondering if you know of a set that's a bit more budget friendly, perhaps $100 to $150, uh, that has similar performance, especially with active noise cancelling. I'm also prepared for you to tell me you get what you pay for and you won't find what you're looking for at that price point. Any ideas, Nate? Yes, several.
0: Um, because I love talking about this and I love talking I about yeah <laughs> uh, about audio in general. Um, there are a few um, and there is an element in the headphone world of you get what you pay for. Um, sometimes you also don't get what you do pay for, as is the case with some incredibly expensive headphones. But that's a story <laughs> for another day. Um, the ones that I've looked up... Um, the number one here is, in in my opinion, could be the AKG N60NC. Um, they cost at the moment about one hundred and sixty dollars. I looked at prices on on um, on. Uh, u.s websites best buy and and amazon uh, specifically and um, they're 160 the akgs are very very good sound quality wise akg sound very close usually to sony so that might be one to check there is also a lower end bose quiet comfort 25 i'm not a massive fan of their sound but their noise cancelling does tend to be excellent they're also about bose
1: is one of those ones that has its fans don't they are they quite bass heavy Exactly.
0: Bose tend to be quite bass-heavy. Sony tend to be quite bass-heavy. Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. That fits the Sony sound profile, doesn't it?
0: Yeah. There is a Sennheiser pair that's about $200, so that may be way too much, Um, but they're very, very good. The HD 4.50 BTNC. Lovely. Um, I think that stands for Bluetooth noise cancelling. They may be over budget, but Sennheiser generally are a good brand. So if there's like a pre-owned pair, you can can maybe... uh, get those um i I, think this, I
1: mean i haven't heard them but i reckon the akg ones would be a good good bet akg is
0: what i bought so my akg they're not noise cancel well, that
1: says it all but
0: honestly i i bought i bought a pair of those myself they were about 120 quids or something when i when i bought them um And uh, Luke in our live chat says, if you can, go into a store and test the noise cancelling. And and you're right. The thing you always can tell the difference is air conditioning, because the frequency that rumbles at is almost, uh, is very similar to what a plane rumbles at, which is basically why noise cancelling was invented um but i wanted to throw out one thing here
1: sennheiser was uh one of the well was the primary inventor of noise cancelling because they do a lot of a- aviation stuff so the first sets of headphones that had noise cancellation were sennheiser's in planes yeah it's
0: it's it's true it's true and i've actually been to sennheiser's um headquarters and um seen a lot of the testing they do for that and it's 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 fascinating the the amount of effort that goes into making good noise cancelling is um is is quite quite amazing Um, but i wanted to point out one possibility as well which looks really good um for jacob which is and i'll put a link to this in the show notes at techpodcast.uk because it's a horrible product name the sony xb950n1 now, I had a look on Best Buy's website, and that looks like it's $130, so it's well within, well, it's right in the middle of the of the budget here, um, but it's down from about $250. And I know for a fact that that is a very, very good set of headphones. Quite bass heavy, um, but an extremely good pair. And Sony's noise cancelling is, is typically very good. I think there are better, but it's good. And that is a bargain. If that Best Buy offer is still available, that might be a really good one to go for, um, particularly if they've got a returns policy. So if you do not, like the sound quality, then you can maybe take it back. But those are our recommendations. I hope they help. Any excuse to talk about audio uh, or gadget advice in general is pretty good. So if you're looking to spend some money and would like Ian and I's opinion, hello at techpodcast.uk is where you can send it to. Ian, would you like to come to Brian's email here? Oh, would I?
1: <coughs> it's not right, Brian the
0: snail, everybody from the Magic Roundabout. It's Brian the listener.
1: Well, we don't know. How do you know that Brian the Snail isn't a listener? Doesn't a, give, oh, he does give his A snail
0: is primarily just one giant muscular foot. In fact, did you know that gastropod, which is what a snail is, yeah. uh, actually means
1: stomach foot? Doesn't surprise me because pod is obviously a very uh, well-known um, thing for feet, isn't it? Indeed. Anyway, why don't you read Brian Not the Snail's email? <laughs> On the podcast, you said that the UK government has reduced the charges on credit cards. However, what you neglected to say was that the government had been rather cheeky in taking credit for this reduction in charges, because in fact this was due to a directive from the EU. Yes, yeah, quite right. He is, (laughs) and I I looked. Almost all of the good stuff comes from the EU. Everybody.
0: Yeah, I um, I, I double checked this after we got the email, and
1: I did actually find out he, he's absolutely correct, and and I didn't know this. We we didn't pick up on this. Well, I was going to mention it last week, but I just didn't bother. But yes, uh, yeah, uh, like all, well, almost all of those uh, re- restrictions on things, you know, like mobile tariffs and stuff like that, you know, roaming has all been EU led. The, the UK government doesn't care, does it? it? Just wants to keep businesses happy.
0: Yeah, I, I, but what what I did find when I did the extra research following Brian's email is that the 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 change is a UK law change as well. So it, this will still apply even after Brexit. So it's not like if we leave sure, the well, EU, all, we'll have to pay. No, debit all of costs. those
1: laws will apply. Um, it's just that because um, they all get written into UK law when we leave. Apparently, it's it's just the speed at which they get to them to you know rescind them if they feel so minded to do so.
0: Well, very finally, very, very quick on here from Mark. He says, hi, Nathan Ian, long-time listener and patron. Just finished listening to episode 122. Great show as always. Um, We were talking about drones and lasers and eagles and stuff. And Mark says, if only we could use drones to take out lasers, then we could replace rock, paper, scissors with a glorious game of drone eagle laser. Um, Which is true, because we we talked about the fact that in the Netherlands, the police, I think, were testing Eagles to take down drones. And in fact, Luke, one of our listeners in the Netherlands, said that that is no longer going on, which is a useful update that we had midweek. And then we've talked about farmers, I think, wasn't it last week, using lasers to take out eagles or to distract eagles who were trying to take out their sheep. So, yeah, this may come full circle if we have some kind of drone that takes out eagles with lasers they, they fight back i don't know it's a weird dystopian future in which uh, we're shooting stuff out of the sky with a combination of machines and birds perhaps one day we'll have a robotic bird killing humans with lasers if you have a yeah. theory on our future dystopian utopia let us know any thoughts and theories hello at techpodcast.uk and on that note it's time to check in with our good friend Tom Merritt at Daily Tech News Show Tom, tell us what's been going on this week in the wider world of global tech
1: Hey, thanks. This week on Daily Tech
0: News Show, we reveal why robots need to look so cute, discuss why bad UI might be at the root of the missile alert false alarm in Hawaii, got the scoop on how the Overwatch League did in its first week, determined that Nintendo's Labo may be the most brilliant use of cardboard yet, and got the scoop from Rob DeMillo on the challenges and successes of companies who want to rent you powerful machines over the internet, so you can do things like edit video from a Chromebook. All that and more at DailyTechNewsShow.com. Thank you, Tom. Tom sounds happy, doesn't he, Ian?
1: It does very very happy it's always good when Tom's happy
0: uh, so yes do check out DTNS some really good stuff uh, this week uh, picking up after all the CES coverage um, that'll do for now if you are one of our patrons thank you very much for listening to your extended edition hope you enjoyed it um, for those not listening to our extended Patreon version we had an a epic conversation uh, that covered a, a incredible, a much much wider range of uh, topics around 2008 uh, tech products that uh that released and how they changed the, the world of tech for the 10 years since they came out uh, and we also talked about Uber as well and uh, some of the weird stuff that they're changing in London uh, for reasons that we think are BS anyway any thoughts and feedback hello at techpodcast.uk and I think Ian unla- unless there's anything
1: else I'm just trying to no, think no I think that's uh...
0: that concludes ah. it doesn't it yeah 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 right um, bye everybody